Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Rising Edge DNO podcast and our third instalment of season two. My name is Richard Kutcher and sat next to me and in your ears for the next 30 minutes or so is Owen Dacey, head of claims for Rising Edge and host of the number one DNO podcast. How about that, Owen? Easy. <laughs> By default, I imagine. Yeah, I think we 35th most popular business podcast in Italy which was a notification <laughs> I got I was proud about but um, big shout out to our Italian Ciao. listeners yeah well last time we heard from Jacqueline Young head of group litigation at Augusta Ventures on the role of litigation funders when a claim arises in this episode we're going to hear the broker's perspective that's right isn't it Owen yes we are so our guest today is Sarah Coots bit of background on Sarah she heads up Marsh uh, UK's financial lines advocacy offering and she is also head of management liability claims for Marsh UK she's been at Marsh for, for a while five years prior to that she's got a good perspective she was in private practice uh, working for insurers at DAC Beechcroft as well before she moved into law she was a journalist just like right. you Richard which I didn't know so uh, we want to speak to Sarah because wanted to learn more about the perspective of the insured the, the DNO when there's a claim if we can learn more about that perspective and understand it better I think it improves our capability to kind of service that client yeah great idea again and yeah Sarah's great in this episode running through the broker side the challenges and some key takeaways too for clients and every part of the, the ecosystem of a uh, DNO claim so she begins by highlighting the early dynamic and concerns of the insured company or person when a claim has been made or an investigation has begun. Well, for an individual DNO, receiving notice of a claim or even a potential claim can be quite overwhelming. So most individuals will only get investigated or face a claim once in their life, um, whatever their status. So that's sort of the starting point. Um, if it's a civil claim, they may be concerned about their personal liabilities and assets. And if it's a regulatory claim, then their concern may be about their ability to work in their current role again. For a company, this could have a huge impact on their business, of course, as well. Um, the amount of time and resource that's used um, or needs to be committed internally for dealing with that claim or investigation um, is substantial and can be a real challenge for the business. So we need to be mindful of the shockwaves that this um, can cause in a business and the impact it can have on their operations, their finances or their reputation. Okay, and so what else, what are kind of the pitfalls at this early stage that people need to be keeping out of? I mean, obviously, you've talked through there some of the immediate concerns. Um, so what are the things that people need to watch out for and, and how are you then as the as the claims broker kind of helping them at that that very early stage with those things? To fully answer your question, I think we need to separate separate out uh, the two main scenarios a DNO may face, and that's whether they do or do not have the support of a company. Obviously, if a DNO does have support of their company, then this will provide them with comfort, both ment mentally and financially. The company's uh, legal and risk teams will be able to provide them some support, and obviously the DNO will have the assurance of then financial support as well, um, particularly around instructing legal advice initially. However, if a DNO is being targeted by their company or their company no longer exists, then they'll feel even more overwhelmed with the prospect of dealing with their claim um, or the potential claim or the investigation. And again, as I said, this is probably going to be the first time that this has happened to the individual. So they're going to be thinking about how to respond to legal demands um, or their requests for interview um, or substantial document requests. And this is um, really, really difficult when they have no immediate support or back so I think the point is for any of 
those parties, though, whether it is an individual or company, one of the things we have to remember is that they won't necessarily be thinking about insurance uh, immediately. They'll be thinking about how do I deal with this claim? How do I respond to the investigation? And that feeds into pitfalls then, because the insurance is not at the forefront of their mind. And if it's not, then they might not be taking all the immediate steps they need to to secure an indemnity further down the line. So that's really the start of it. Um, and it's understandable that they're not focusing on insurance in the midst of this crisis, but it does mean they're at risk of missing certain steps, mm-hmm. technical mm-hmm. steps, procedural steps. And two of the obvious ones there are sort of timeliness of notification and then a requirement for consent. Um, and as I've already mentioned, um, around, of course, um, instructing legal advisors at the yeah. at the start of the process. Has it ever happened where people don't even you speak to them, they didn't even know they had insurance, or they weren't even aware of the existence of insurance? I think for individuals it can happen, yes, um, particularly if they aren't engaged with the company anymore. Yeah. Um, and again, it might not be something that comes into their mind because they are just completely engulfed yeah, yeah. in dealing with the matter. And, and maybe if they're in a new company, that company is providing them some support in dealing with that. Uh, they might have some legal advisors already who can help them deal with it. So it may be further down the line. And of course, if they're not with the company that might have the policy to, to cover them, that it might even take quite a while for them to, to track down how, yeah, to, how, right, to, how yeah. to find that policy yeah. and get access to us. Um, that's the initial initial stage with the individual company. We'll m- move on to the notification stage. What sort of information are you gathering? Obviously, your experience of doing this, you know what the insurers need. What sort of stuff are you gathering, and and what challenges do you have at this stage when you're when you're gathering that information before you engage with the insurer? Yeah, so notifications obviously a fine uh, sort of fine balance between timing and content. Um, with timing. Uh, we need to get the um, notification in in a timely fashion in a reasonable amount of time. Obviously, if it's around expiry, then that becomes even more important and time really is of the essence. And then there's that balance, as I said, with actually what information is available to be provided to insurers. And regarding that level of information, we need to educate the insured around what's really required to get the insurer on board because we want the insurer to be in a position to respond quickly to decisions that need to be made. Uh, But at the same same time, as I said, the converse of that is what is available for the insurer. And the reality is there will not be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, everything will not be available at the get-go. And there has to be some understanding about that as well. Yeah. So there's sort of, you know, good efforts on both sides. One, to provide that information, but two, to be realistic yeah. about what's available and to actually be commercial and support the insured in making those quick decisions. Mm-hmm. And around that, I think um, insurers need to have that understanding that, you know, they live and breathe and are embedded in this minefield of claims activity and investigations. As I've said, insureds aren't. It's just not something they deal with on a daily basis. So again, even the most sophisticated company, the most sophisticated DNO or individual or board, um, this isn't something that they deal with on a daily basis. So that kind of feeds in as well as to what information can they provide um, and in what sort of timely fashion balance with the the response they need from insurers um, also in a timely fashion. And I think uh, the other point as well, which you'll be well aware of, is, of course, restrictions around information sometimes yeah. as well. There'll be confidentiality issues, privilege issues that they'll be worried about potentially. And, of course, regulatory. Sometimes they're not able to provide information because of those sort of restrictions. Lots of challenges. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, sorry, you had me really interested. Just one point you made there about um, when it's at the end of a policy period. And one thing I was interested in or I'm interested in is 
during this crazy market that's been going on at the moment with lots of um, people pulling out and then switch of insurers, retroactive dates going on. I, I could just see I could just see a lot of um, issues coming up when you've got those that kind of um, the changeover of the insurer. Have you have you seen much of that in terms of? Arguments between insurers when it's kind of in between the two, or absolutely, yeah. oh, you have, my bread yeah. and butter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, notification around time of expiry is always a tricky one. Um, the new insurers, if there's any sort of issues, any new insurers coming on board want it notified to prior policies. Whether yeah. you know, if there's sort of any any possibility of it being accepted as a circ, they want it on there. And if not, they're going to stick on a specific matters exclusion or something yeah, like right. that. Yeah. So it, it, it gets really tricky. Claims. Um, a bit easier, dare I say, a bit easier. But the circs are really where the problem is. And it's that subjective test, of course, as well, is what did the insured think at the time? What is their view? You know, is the claim likely to arise? Or, you know, do we think it may arise out of what's happening right now? So it is tricky. We all know there's lots of case law about it. Um, As I said, it's about the view of the insured as well at the time. And we have a, you know, a current matter now. It's actually, it's um, the same insurer on sort of the year one, year two. Mm. But the circ was notified just after after inception and this insurer has has reasons to want to put it back to year one um, or in fact reject it and think it should be in year one Um, and it's really tricky because the insured is actually a really um, risk averse insured insured sorry and they notify everything Mm -hmm. Um, and in this occasion they didn't because their honest belief was it it was not a CERC a notifiable CERC but they're up against it with their insurer Um, and actually that you know the knock-on effect of that is the problem even more of a problem because they want to actually settle this matter they want to and there's an opportunity to do it and and but they can't without the backing of their insurer so it's sort of stymieing that whole settlement process which isn't for anyone's benefit at the end of the day but yeah it's an ongoing issue so so, yeah, notification will keep we'll us in business. see more of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, not good at all, but but kind of interesting to kind of raise people's awareness around it as being a really important issue. So that's the notification. We're, we're now on to kind of we've kind of touched on it a little bit with with the with being realistic about what you can expect to get. But I think it's an interesting one again, just to kind of raise people's awareness about what are the most common requests for information or, or um, questions that come back from the insurer after they get the notice? Well, the insured, if they put in a notification, they want to know as quickly as possible that it's received, accepted, and insurers are on board with them. Um, as we've already mentioned, you know, decisions have to be made. The, the absolute key one, most often, of course, is getting legal advisors yeah. on board. And um, more often than not, the insured will need the insurer's backing to do that. Um, so that is really the, the first step. And, and something that's really critical. And again, if it's a side A DNO, they will definitely need insurers backing to instruct um, a lawyer. And that's not even that's not even for the financials, but it's also they might need that guidance. Um, they won't have access or maybe the exposure to who would help them in these type of scenarios. So they really do need to tap in to their um, well, either brokers support, but actually, you know, the insurer is the one who can help them there as well. So, so that timely response from the insurer. And that's really what the insured wants to know. Um, Hopefully they will have provided enough information. Um, We will obviously support them with that. And if we do it in the right way, um, it won't be a data dump, but it won't be sort of, you know, one sentence either. It'll be something in the middle. It'll be presented in the right way. And that's what's so critical as well to sort of minimize any pushback and hopefully get the insurer comfortable as much as they can be at the early stages to just get on board and and support their insured. 
I love it when it's presented in that way because it's just it can just be I always think it can be so simple it can just be a yes but then there are there are lots of other examples I could probably talk to where it, it is just a sentence I mean I'm not talking about Marsh now <laughs> of course not just for it, but right, a sentence so you're like gosh, what's, gosh what's been going on here like it's quite hard to work out so you're then in that kind of period of back and forth trying to work it out again we've sort of touched on it a little bit with the notification but what are the most common coverage issues that you're seeing come up on DNO claims that you deal with and um, we'll deal with that first and then we'll co- we'll talk a bit more about s- sort of defense issues after that yeah so coverage issues well I, I suppose the starting point actually is if a DNO is sued or investigated they assume their DNO policy is yeah. going to respond it's yeah. going to pick up any of those liabilities including that support that sort of defense um, or advice support at the very beginning so any messaging that varies from that starting position needs to be sensitive mm-hmm. and it needs to be well thought out. The product is there to support DNOs. It's, you know, they are exposed more and more um, greatly individually now to yeah. and significant risks and significant financial risk as well. So we don't expect coverage issues to arise. So when they do, as I said, they need to be communicated properly. Mm-hmm. Of course they do arise. <laughs> Wishful thinking that they don't, but they do arise. Um, and the key ones are around notification, which we've discussed, timeliness around notification, sometimes content as well, um, as you've mentioned, and also like lack of consent. Insureds, and as I've mentioned before, won't necessarily be thinking insurance the minute this thing hits them, the letter comes across the desk. So they might have taken steps to get themselves in a better position, take on some advisors to get some legal advice, things like that. And insurers will have an issue with that, often have an issue. What we find, and which is a bugbear, I have to say, what we find is that it's really around the legal advisors, mm-hmm. defense counsel. Um, insurers do pick up on that a lot if they haven't been on board with that instruction. And I find it's less to do with who's been instructed and more to do with what their rates are. Right. Yeah. Quite frankly, insurers are fixated with, with hourly <laughs> rates. <laughs> and it's, um, it's quite unnecessary. It's quite unnecessary. There's a few elements there. I mean, m- you know, a lot of London market insurers have panel firms. Yeah. We all know they do, and that, that's great. But the panel firm rates are are deals, they're, they're reduced because they're on a panel yeah, yeah. and everyone recognises that. And hence when a insured, which they are allowed to do, mm-hmm. instructs someone off panel, those rates will not be the same. Mm-hmm. Yet it seems to come as a surprise to insurers on a, you know, on a n- numerous occasions um, that, that these rates aren't the same. And they challenge them, they push back on them, they, they try and wangle them down. And I think they're just too fixated on rates mm-hmm. because they're not actually looking at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Is this the right person for the job? Is, what's the specialism? What's the quantum? What's the complex, you know, complexity? And also the jurisdiction, as we know, certain jurisdictions, the rates are, you know, they're going to be high. And of course, anyone sort of on a strategy sort of level knows if you get the heavy hitters in early, sometimes, you know, that is an efficiency, a cost efficiency, and you're going to shut this down quicker by doing that. So there's lots of elements there, but we find that insurers often will push back just based on the numbers on the page and won't think outside of that. And that's very frustrating. Again, it it can delay the process, it can cause undue stress, particularly for a side A. Again, they do not have the financial backing of the company. They are on their own. And we had a case recently 
with a guy he'd left the company he was being investigated by a regulator he was in a very senior position so this was a serious serious investigation and we had an insurer pushing back on an unbelievably reasonable rate that he had been you know quoted by his his chosen legal advisors um, they also threw in a, a really silly exclusion as well that they were trying to rely on and unfortunately that took sort of four weeks of advocacy to, to really get around that and ultimately both points were dropped but that DNO was four weeks there you know with the additional stress of not having that cover confirmed so it's just you know as I said that's one bugbear as I'm sure has yeah. become clear um, but it, it you know it has it has a ripple effect as well um, and it's not always sensible so that's definitely one thing we have to deal with and obviously there are others it's not just those two um, we also have um, exclusions as I've mentioned um, aggregation allocation things like that um, so yeah there are other sort of elements that come up but um, that sort of lack of consent point is is, is yeah. definitely one it's, that we have to it's such a, it's interesting that um, you've talked about that one because I felt I feel like you're, and you've kind of you've kind of hit on it as well it, it really doesn't it's really not of course the correct the, the right legal um the, the right legal team is absolutely the most one of the most critical things you can do and arguing about 100 pounds an hour whether it's 500 or 600 pounds an hour it, do, it really doesn't have any any impact other than just like the things you said all the other kind of knock-on impacts all the stress all the delay and what everyone should really be doing is trying to get as quickly as they can to the position right where it's Co coverage confirmed and we're all thinking about the claim now so yeah no it's interesting well I, I think on that as well the other point to make is of course that this is a this is a contractual relationship but actually it's a partnership when, when yeah. something hits like that th there's a partnership there's a relationship that needs to be built yeah. because as as we well know these investigations and claims can go on for years so it develops into a relationship and the insured and insurer should have a good relationship and for it to start out yeah. in a negative way again isn't helpful yeah. And that's another element that yeah. feeds in, in in the long term, might not actually help anyone overall. Mm -hmm. So getting a level of trust, understanding um, and partnership early on in the process is really helpful as well for both insured and insurer. And I think there's a long term gain there yeah. as well. Talking about those things like trust and partnership, how do you go about as, a, as an advocate getting, getting the parties together? And that, has that been harder in COVID? Because, you know, it's great if you can actually, I've found going in front of an insured um, with one of you guys or it might be another broker and seeing them face to face it's very different to kind of being behind emails isn't it and suddenly and it's so much easier to build that trust and that partnership yeah 100% and actually even going back to the notification stage yeah. you know we're all sort of really reliant on getting things on an email and yeah. getting everything recorded and, and we know what we've done and they've said and everything like that but actually you're absolutely right at certain times of the, of the claim and, and even as I said at the very get go with notification getting on the phone or if you know hopefully now going forward in a room um, and having a conversation is massively helpful it can you know prevent 500 emails being sent and, and extra weeks actually one hour around the table um, and certainly with insurers speaking directly to the insured and, and vice versa it's massive you can make leaps there yeah, yeah. Um, so I absolutely agree um, that happens early on and then um, at that stage but of course at key you know, strategic yeah. points in the yeah. claim massively beneficial rather than trying to ping around emails mm -hmm. and, and certainly if there is a sticky sort of coverage point again getting around the table and having a discussion face to face um, gives everyone a lot more comfort and understanding of the situation 
And as I've mentioned before, you know, insurers are in a different position that they hold all the cards, they've got the experience, they know how the knowledge and of course the money. Um, the insurer doesn't, this is new to them, often very new, um, quite shocking and overwhelming but actually getting across the table from each other and for the insurer to understand where the insured's coming from, what they were thinking, what they thought, what they need to do, how they need to resolve this. It's a great conversation to have and can really help throughout the whole process. And that's kind of, we, we were gonna come on to it, we sort of touched on it again, but the what are the com- common sticking points on, on that strategy side of things we're just talking about? What Where does it go wrong there, do you think? Or where can you have difficulties there, I guess, with the insurers? Well, I mean, at the very end, of course, any sort of settlements and things like that, you need insurers on board around that. And all of us are aware that settlements aren't just about, you know, merits of a claim or anything. There's commercial elements in there as well, reputation elements. There's a lot of factors in play. So again, that having a good relationship with your insurer and having them on board and them having a good understanding of the insured and their pressures or their sort of push points and things and what they need to achieve that really helps at that stage um, because settlement can be very tricky the discussions can be tricky as you know but having everyone on board and at least on the same page is really really helpful yeah I think prior to that it just goes back to the coverage issues and and you know I mean another one that I didn't mention was um, around um, capacity which is a you know quite a common DNO one or can be Um, and arguably we would say do you need a professional services exclusion in a in a DNI policy? Probably not, because actually the policies were maybe you don't need it. But certainly around professional uh, services firms, yeah. it's a nightmare to have in it. Yeah. An absolute yeah. nightmare, particularly if it's written very broadly. Well, for solicitors, for example, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we've got we've got a current uh, claim going on with a um, a very senior partner who dealt with recruitment and and, and you know and employing people, and it's been investigated by a regulator, um, and the insurer is raising a capacity point. Mm-hmm. You think, well, you know. Of course, he's a lawyer. He's never not going to be a lawyer. Mm. But he wasn't providing any professional services. He was helping to run the company. Yeah. But it's still a point and it's still an issue. And, and again, he's got this guy has, you know, the regulator breathing down his neck. He's got a very, very, you know, uh, serious regulatory investigation that he's dealing with. But at the same time, he's having to go through a mediation process with his insurers right. over a point which... I don't think it's a very good one at yeah, all. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe getting around a table when that would be, would yeah, be helpful as well. Of well, course, I think I've yeah. seen it go. I've, I've seen it go wrong multiple times with going back a step, just the the settlement discussions, and the, I've seen it. The insurer thinking, well, this is all commercial. This is this is there isn't really any legal liability there. Or, but like you say, I think that discussion is is like a hundred times easier if you've got if you've done that built that trust at the beginning and you've got around a table and you actually sit with people because you know. Uh, sitting sitting miles away on different desks in different rooms behind emails um, you really don't it's really not very easy to get a sense of of really what's going on and what's driving it for the other other people involved so yeah we have talked a bit about where it goes wrong and um, some of the some of the common issues that come up and again we've kind of touched a bit what what kind of role do you do you play as the advocate then when you those issues come up well when things go fantastically wrong between insurers and insureds um, and the parties are at loggerheads um, it's generally because there's you know, a fundamentally bad point there mm-hmm. that's being made which perhaps undermines the value of the product that the insured has actually bought um, or it could be something that tarnishes the insured's reputation that is personally you know damaging to them so in either of those scenarios it does it can get very heated it can get very stressful um, for the insured in particular 
Well, that ties back to what you were saying earlier about being sensitive. Well, being sensitive to that issue and then whatever language you're using, pausing for thought because actually on the, the person on the other end of that communication is a very extremely serious thing and they're being accused of extremely serious things. So um, that's another great, I think it's just another great takeaway on that one um, for everyone involved. So yeah, we are in a highly sanitized corporate environment <laughs> um, being, being in shorts, but and this is probably about as, as out there as long as I'm going to go um, but I had is it is it I kind of think sometimes and the claims advocacy role is probably one of the most I, I would say probably one of the most important roles at a broker I'm, I'm convinced of that but is it kind of a damning reflection on on the insurance industry that that role even exists because if we were if we were doing our right job all the time then then why would they need someone you know adv- why would the client need someone advocating yeah, I better be careful how I answer so I don't <laughs> put myself out of a job here, Owen. But um, yeah, I mean, as we said, you know, this, this is a contract between two parties. And uh, when it's tested, the insured expects it to respond. So insurers finding ways for it not to respond is not helpful. And I'm not saying that that's you know, what they're out there to do, absolutely not. But that's how it can feel. And for an insured, as I said, who expects you know, insurers to be on board, the policy to trigger, the money to flow. It, it's a very, it's a very tricky uh, or difficult pill to swallow, I should say. Yeah. So, I think one element of that comes from the increased use of legal advisors by insurers. None of us will have missed the fact that insurers have got a lot more ex-private practice people within the business, um, as well as um, increased use of external. Mm-hmm. Law firms, you know, law firms, either it's sort of TPA type um, law firms or indeed they just send things out to coverage council, the panels that we discussed mm-hmm. earlier. Now, I can see, you know, there's definite reasons why they do that. That's fine. But the, the point is that they are going to, those lawyers are going to be looking at the very, very technical aspects yeah. of the policy. And actually, it's not always helpful in the long run. And what insurers need to be able to do is to step back and actually look at the advice in the round. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they get advice very early, you know, we notify a claim, boom, straight out to coverage council. And so they've gotten advice very early in the process, maybe based on limited information, but they might become very entrenched with what they've been advised at that early stage. And that makes it even more difficult to get them past Mm -hmm. any of those coverage issues that might be in that advice. But what they need to do is, as I said, step back, look at it in the round. What's the advice? What's the claim? What's the product? Is this the type of claim that this product should be responding to? If so, well, it should be responding. If there's a bit of gray, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to use it as a coverage position and and actually challenge the product and and actually use it to make life difficult for your insured. And again, I would go back to the side A DNO. They cannot have a policy, DNO policy, that's not responding. It undermines the product itself, but it also makes it very difficult for people to take on those positions. As we said, they have huge risks now around them, around the, the decisions they make, the actions they take in those roles they need that support behind them so yeah i think that's what insurers need to do just take yeah. that step back and, and look at it a bit more yeah. in the round just flipping on its head a little bit what are the what are the really good claims teams and and claims handlers doing in the market 
as, as a kind of polar opposite to that, what are they doing? Yeah, well, I think it, I, I think it is, you know, pretty much what I said, yeah. which is just being more commercial and understanding. Yeah. And there's definitely, you know, it's different individual, certain individuals, I should say, certain insurers who are yeah. maybe more prone to that, that we would think they're more prone yeah. to that, which is saying, do you know what? Let's look at this advice yeah. we've gotten or let's think, OK, well, there's a bit around here, but, but it's grey. It's not black or white. And actually, is this claim something that should be covered? Yes, it is. Well, then let's cover it. For, let's support our insured here. Yeah. Um, and e- even more so, if they've got a long relationship with that insured, you know, what's that insured? Bit, how long is that relationship? What does that claim sort of uh, claims record look like for that insured? This is again could be a once in a lifetime type event for this insured. Yeah. They need their insurers on board, not just for the money, but also for the support, for the advice, for yeah, the know-how, yeah. because insurers are as I said, living and breathing this, yeah. the insured is not. So yeah, there absolutely are individuals and certain insurers who are much uh, more pragmatic, I think, yeah. about the product. And sometimes that is with the support of external counsel. I'm not deriding off them at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we don't appreciate when claims go in and they immediately yeah, get sent out. out. Yes, yeah, I, I yeah. don't think that's helpful. I don't think. No, that. that makes perfect sense to me. Okay, so finally, we like to talk about risk mitigation. If you've listened, uh, to the first five, you'll know that. So we th- think about risk mitigation, the ways in which we can help clients uh, mitigate risk. So what what ways um, do you are you helping clients mitigate risk before there's a claim? Could you walk us through some of the things that you're doing on that? Yeah, no problem. So obviously Marsh provides management consultancy, risk consultancy and advisory services. So sure. plenty of people in Marsh who are uh, plenty of expertise in that area. But more specifically, just around that, that sort of just before the claim or around the, the sort of claim piece itself is what we can do from a claims perspective is help to educate the client internally around what is the policy, what is, uh, you know, what do you need to do to get cover on the policy? Timing of notification, again, um, what it can be notified, CERCs, of course, as well as the actual claims or investigations themselves. So we would um, often provide some education around that to the legal or risk functions, compliance functions, or indeed anyone in that sort of reporting chain. And that's the other element is that internal reporting, because a lot of our uh, clients, of course, are very large companies. They'll be in multiple jurisdictions. So while they might have a centralized sort of risk or legal function, they're only as good as their reporting lines into them. And so um, what we can do is help around sort of protocols and things like that to assist in that reporting line into that central function so that then that comes on through to us um, and gets notified um, and that decisions are made, hopefully, with insurers on board and not before. I've seen that too with with subsidiaries in different countries and then the risk manager or whoever you're speaking to, is they're kind of upset about it as well because they're they're trying to like control what's going on uh, and they they might find about it find out about it after the event so absolutely that's great you're doing that brilliant thank you so much for all that i, I just had one more question for you if that's all right and it's um you, you were a, a sort of private practice before law firm doing defense work and coverage work and uh, all that great stuff and you've switched over to the, the claims advocacy side what's the best thing about what do you enjoy most about being a claims advocate Oh, that's a nice question. Um, <laughs> thanks, Owen. I think I like dealing with the insureds, yeah. actually. I really like doing that because, as I mentioned before, the insurers who are, I used to work for um, in private practice are great, but this is their bread and butter. They know, you know these sort of day-to-day events for them. Whereas for the insured, 
it is sort of more critical it's more and it's interesting to engage with them at these really difficult yeah. times to learn more about their business the you know the issues the pressures it's not just about the claim it's everything else yeah. that's going on so i really enjoy engaging with them actually that's a really fun extra sort of new element of dealing with the claims yeah, process and helping them insurers have got enough help so yeah more help for clients <laughs> is good that's great <laughs> So that was really good from Sarah. Certainly another guest you can hear is, is passionate about their job and, and the world of DNO. Owen, I'm sure you learned plenty there as well, hearing some pretty frank views from the broker advocacy side of things. Yeah, it's brilliant. Great to hear that perspective. So, so the takeaways there, I think probably the, the way the conversation went, probably more for the insurers out there and, and the people handling the claims more than anyone else. But I think if you're going to be successful in whatever you do in life, you know one of the important skills is empathy or at least to try and understand the kind of, of feelings of another person and um, I'm not saying we can fully share those feelings if you haven't had the same experiences but the kind of first part embarking on that process I think that goal is to ask the questions and listen to the perspective of, of others and I think we had some amazing insights there from Sarah into that perspective of the insured about how it feels so, so I thought it was brilliant. So some of the main takeaways really the first one was for most people, it was just a reminder for me, it only might happen once in someone's life, this event. So when it happens, it's a monumental moment in that in that person's life or in the life of the business. And, and so as a starting point, that kind of wraps around everything when we're thinking about how you handle the situation. Second point was about timing of notif notification and perhaps this being an area of potential disputes. I've seen it happen. I can say with absolute certainty, the only person who definitely does not benefit or suffers from that situation is the insured. So, so we need to recognise that and make sure we're finding a quick solution, which ensures the, the insured is protected in those situations. We had some more insights around lack of consent, hourly rates, us being fixated on rates, probably probably a fair criticism, I think, of some people. Um, the impact these points can have. But the thing really, many of those bones of contention on reflecting on it, it's really within our control to deal with those issues quite easily in a way that doesn't delay the process and, and doesn't cause that unnecessary stress. So in a way, I'm sort of encouraged um, because as long as you're thinking about that perspective of the other person, then then you should be able to handle these issues appropriately. And finally, Sarah takes it back to basics, which I think is, as help is helpful too when thinking about this. If you're an insured, you have a claim, you have a contract, you expect the policy to respond. Now, it, it might not for whatever reason, it might be a good reason, fine. And Sarah wasn't definitely, she was definitely not suggesting for one second that all insurers are out there trying to get out paying a claim. And that's most definitely not my experience either in fact quite the opposite but when these issues arise such as consent the hourly rates and notification issues when the insurer is raising these issues it can feel that way if you are the insured and I think it's it's really important to have that perspective and consider how it feels so if you're alive to that and and maybe you can pause for thought find ways to deal with the issues in a way so that it's clear that's really not what you're trying to do and then you can embark on that process of like Sarah described, building the trust and partnership, which is so important when, when handling the claims. Yeah, really good rundown, Owen. And, and yeah, good to hear you obviously really thought about it uh, from that insurer perspective. And obviously you've taken quite a lot away from it yourself. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and how you're going to operate. Yeah. But th that's all we've got time for, for episode eight. And that means we are over halfway through our Inside Track mini-series. Owen, next week, it's you that is up as the subject matter, as we'll be hearing the, the poor claims handler side of things. <laughs> you're looking forward to uh, sharing, those yes. you, sharing that experience? I am. Yeah, not looking... I mean, I don't expect any sympathy 
sympathy whatsoever. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll do our best to kind of give that inside track again as to really what's going on to help the people who aren't on uh, working on within the insurer to help them understand the things, the pinch points, the tips, the, the pitfalls. So, yeah. Yeah, and that is exactly the point of the, of the whole inside track that we've put together. So really good to hear the claims and the perspective next time. Until then, stay well. Thanks, Richard. See you next time. Take care, listeners, and speak to you soon.